Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Andy Payne, welcome to the Ocean Protect Podcast. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Where are you calling from today, Andy? I am in Brisbane right now. Oh, cool. And, and you actually contacted us. Uh, I think we have a mutual friend in Tammy Amaday who ha- I've, seen, I've seen some p- photos of you guys on, on train, change yourself to train tracks, which is we'll get to. But uh, And you reached out saying, hey, if you want to talk about climate change activism, I'm all keen. Uh, so. Here we are. Yes. Well, Tammy is a big fan of your podcast and told me that it's really good and that it'd be worth reaching out. So here we go. Here we go. So so in other words, you haven't listened to one of our episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Tammy, Tammy said it was good anyway, mate. I trust and, her judgment. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is how we get to talk to really cool people, mate. So um, welcome to the Ocean Pit podcast, mate. So what do you do, Andy, just for people that don't know you, you know, what what, what do you do for a day job? Well, my day job, when I do it, I'm actually a disability support worker, but of more relevance to the Ocean Protects podcast probably <laughs> is that for the last couple of years, I have spent a lot of time living in central Queensland trying to stop the Adani coal mine, which many of your listeners would have heard of, a huge coal mine proposed in the Galilee Basin in Queensland. And so I'm part of an organization called Frontline Action on Coal, which went to the sort of affected area and tried to work with locals and also did direct action, uh, physically stopping the construction of that mine. What's your role in Frontline Action on Coal? Are are you sort of one of the founders or directors or just a a team member or or what? Yeah, well, we're sort of a non-hierarchical, flexible organization. And so it's adaptable to whoever is around at the time and whoever, whatever skills people have and able to contribute. And so we don't have formal job titles, but there's a a group of us that I guess have been involved longer and uh, do a bit more stuff. And so... Even though I'm just a, a frontline action on coal person, just like everybody else, I've done a lot of the communications and media for FLAC, as we call it. And I've been involved for a long time, both in the Adani campaign and we had a previous campaign in Western New South Wales against the Malls Creek coal mine, which I was also involved in. And so just backtracking a little bit, who are Adani? Because we hear their name in a lot of different places, and as referred to the Adani project, et cetera. But who is Adani? So Adani is a huge Indian company, and India has this kind of tradition of these mega companies that do all kinds of different things, Tata being one of the, the classic ones. And, yeah, you have these big uh, industrialists, I guess, who just own factories and ports and farms and whatever. And so Adani's in that tradition. Gautam Adani is from Gujarat on the west coast of India and he's a businessman. And so mostly their business has been in ports and airports, but they also have branched out into electricity generation, both coal and solar. And then from there to become a kind of every link in the chain type company, they decided they would start coal mining a few years ago. And so Adani Carmichael Mine in central Queensland is one of their first coal mine projects. And sadly, the place they chose to do it is a place where is 
currently unexplored coal basin and in a world where we don't need more fossil fuels, we're trying to keep these places where there's not the infrastructure currently, keep that stuff in the ground. And so that's where Adani tried to set up, which is why that mine in particular was chosen to resist it because there's huge reserves of coal there that we want to make sure aren't burnt and going into our atmosphere. And so when we hear about the Adani project in Australia in particular, they're more or less referring to the Carmichael Mine and Rail Project. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And, and so what is that project? Where is it? How big is it? And what's it for? The Carmichael Mine and Rail Project. Yeah, so the mine is... The closest town is Claremont, which probably doesn't help many of your listeners because it's not a <laughs> tourist destination generally. Uh, it's west inland of Mackay, basically. It's about probably five hours inland of Mackay in central Queensland. Adani then has also had to build a rail line, which goes to Adani's port as well. They own ports being their main business. They first bought the Abbott Point port, which is just near Bowen on the coast of Queensland. And so... The proposed mine originally was a huge, huge mine, 60 million tonnes of coal per year, and it would have stretched over kilometres, so these, the pit, like up to 10 kilometres long, an open-cut pit, and it, with a whole new big rail line that would go directly to Adani's port. The mine and the rail line have both, and the port actually, have all been downsized since then as the public opposition um, has sort of made it more difficult for them to do this project. And so the current mine that they have just opened is will run about 10 million tonnes per annum, which is about average size for coal mine. And they've built a much smaller rail line and the port has never been expanded. And so it's still a, a big operation and still something that we don't need climate-wise, but um, it's not, not the mega mine that it was once proposed to be. It's, it's, it's obviously captivated the nation and probably the globe. Everyone knows Adani. Uh, these guys, obviously, you know, they're entitled. I, I don't know anything about them. Obviously, you've just told us they're from an, an Indian company. Are they publicly listed or is it a private company? Do you know? No, it's owned by Gautam Adani, one man, okay. the, the richest man in India. He's just overtaken Ambani, who is another similar kind of industrialist. So, yeah, his, he and his family are the ones pocketing the profits. Pocketing the profits. And so when was the initial big mine proposed? I mean, how long has this battle been going on? I mean, the public, it feels like Adani's been around for years in this whole situation. You know, when was this first proposed and how long has everyone been opposing the new mine? Yeah, the first proposal, the first approval, government approval was in 2014. So it had been a few years in the works before then. And I hadn't been involved at all, but locals in the area had early on been opposing it from even earlier. The Wangan Jagalingu Aboriginal people on whose country it is had opposed it from a very early stage. And the port, uh, originally there was a planned port expansion at Abbott Point, which was very contentious and was opposed by a lot of people that live on the coast there and that people who earn their living from the Great Barrier Reef, which could have been affected by more dredging of, through the reef and things like that. So that was, yeah, 2014. That was when I first got involved at the time. We, Frontline Action on Coal, were still in New South Wales fighting another coal mine. But then after that campaign wrapped up, we sort of moved up to Queensland and began campaigning against the Adani mine, which they started actual work on the ground in 2017. And that was when we set up a permanent presence there. So it's been a long, long time coming, as you say. I mean, the mine just shipped out its first coal in the last month or two. And so it's taken a, a long time for them to get to that point. Can, can you just go back to the figure you stated and initially they were going to produce X amount per annum, but now they're only producing, was it 10 million tonnes per annum? Can you just yeah. give us that? Um, 60 million tonnes per annum was the original proposal. And so it's uh, a much smaller, I mean, for, for Adani, I think they're assuming that at some point they can expand it up to what they originally hoped for, but hopefully the world will change in a more climate-friendly direction by that point and it just won't be viable to do that. Now, this might be a silly question, but where are we sending it? So it goes up to port. Where, where does that go? Uh, yeah, so Adani also owns ports in India where all of this coal will go and 
then it will actually be bought by Adani um, to run their power stations in India. And that power goes to both India and into Bangladesh, where they sell the power generated by their coal-fired power stations. And so it's a pit to port to PowerPoint operation um, for Adani. Adani's making a lot of money, clearly, and obviously will continue to do so. But just just to backtrack a little bit, and people may be wondering on why we're talking about a, a coal pit on the Ocean Protect podcast. So just to join the dots for, for people who, who may not be familiar, one of the leading causes of climate change is the burning of fossil fuels, particularly coal. And actually, I think it might be the leading cause of climate change. And obviously, climate change is potentially the greatest threat to the health of our oceans. It causes, obviously, significant dieback of, of, of reef environments, which, you know, something like 80% of all uh, marine species spend at least a portion of their life in a reef environment. With, I guess, in, increased global or, or air and sea temperatures, we see an expansion of the, of the ocean sea levels as well. And it basically has probably a whole bunch of impacts we don't even know how to quantify or analyze, but certainly climate change is a key threat to ocean health. And obviously the burning of coal is essentially the, the leading cause or potentially the leading causes of this climate change. So it obviously makes sense to mitigate the extraction and subsequent burning of coal, particularly, I believe, in uh, places like India where their emission reduction um, you know, strategies or technologies associated with coal burning are probably uh, below par. Is that a fair call, uh, Andy, in relation to, in comparison to, say, Australia? Yeah, well, it's one of the issues around climate change is that you've got developed nations who we sort of rode fossil fuels to prosperity and now we can say, oh, fossil fuels are kind of bad, we should reduce them. But then you have the developing nations like India, like China, who are saying, hang on, we're still developing our economy to get to your point. We want the same advantage as you have, so we want to keep burning coal. On one hand, you would say is fair enough. And so that's why really the developed world who have had these advantages, we really have the responsibility to be making sure that there's cleaner, safer ways for other other countries to get the same standard of living that we have. Not to mention, I mean, I'm sure our listeners could draw up the dots there, Brad, but thank you for that. But the main reason we got Andy on is because he's nuts and he <laughs> chained, chained himself to a, to a railway line. And I've just seen a picture of it and you actually, like, dug out, got down, mate, give us the, how did you put your hand up for that one? And <laughs> and how long, was it, how long were you there for? Give us the whole before, during, and after story, mate, please. Yeah, sure. Well, I guess to start off with, you have to start, go way back and say that for a long time, this kind of civil disobedience action, uh, direct action as we call it, putting your body in the way of things that you morally disagree with has a long history and it goes way back, possibly longer than any of us ever know because all through history there would have been people doing it and possibly it wasn't recorded very well, but certainly in the 20th century for the rights of oppressed people, they would often do these kind of direct actions and in the last half a century for the environment, frequently there's a history of blockading to protect forests or to stop mining projects or pipelines or or things like that. Basically, using the power you have as a physical body to go and get in the way of people doing work that, that you disagree with. And so, frontline action on coal, we work in that tradition and it, we've seen it, it work for different causes over the years. In Australia, you have famous environmental campaigns like blocking of the Franklin Dam or the Jabaluka uranium mine, or the Bentley Coal Seam Gas Project in more recent years, so and also around the world. So that's the the basic idea behind it. And so I think that it's really powerful. I think that it, so often the decision making in our society is done by these faraway people who have law degrees, lots of money, lots of privilege, lots of um, political power and things like that. And the ordinary person is sort of shut out of these processes. But when you open it up to say, well, let's just go there. If you believe something, go and do it. Then it puts the power back in the hands of ordinary people. And also doing these kind of controversial actions makes sure that these issues are discussed. And so when Adani talks about, you know, how much money they can make, how many jobs they can have, all this kind of thing, how good it is for the economy, one way of making sure that 
that the media is saying people disagree with this it's bad for the environment is to make sure we're there and we're causing a ruckus and say yeah i've i've done this for different causes over the years it's certainly not the first time i've been arrested for blockading <laughs> something what, what was the first the first one actually it was a u.s military training exercises in australia during the war on terror while australia was still involved in afghanistan So the U.S. was doing military training in Queensland and I went there and I blocked their training. That was my first arrest blockading and there's been a few others since then. Look, there's no doubt this sort of activism in my mind is effective, but you can see obviously there's two sides of the coin. You know, one group will look at guys like Frontline Action on Coal or the likes of, say, Extinction Rebellion who glue themselves to the footpath of, say, the Main Street of Brisbane and they go... I totally, totally have complete admiration for those individuals for standing up for what they believe in and doing something about it and putting themselves literally on the, on the lawn in harm's way to make change and improve quality of life or, or whatever it might be. The second side of the argument is obviously people who are negatively impacted and go, these guys are just annoying. They're stopping me from delivering my coal or doing my shopping or getting my, getting my, my kid to school or myself to work. They're just being a pain in the butt. So why is this issue, This obviously this issue around stopping Adani or at least reducing their output isn't a nothing issue. Why is this issue in relation to climate change so important to you? There's a tension in our everyday life, right, that we, um, we want a good life and so we go and we go to work, whatever work we can get, we get the best paying job we can get, which for many people is in a mine. And we go and we, we buy things, we put on the air conditioning, we um, take part in, in whatever things that we think are, are good for life, right? And in the short term, that might work and it, we might not like people disrupting that, disrupting the things that we associate with a, a comfortable, you know, normal routine. But the tension is that our good life is not sustaining of life, right? It's not sustaining of future human life as climate change gets worse and it's not sustaining of ocean life, other ecosystems. And so somebody needs to bring out that tension, I guess, to make us think otherwise we'll just think, oh, yeah, I'm going well, my life is going well. And so I guess that's part of the theory of what we do is that you've got to be a bit annoying because climate change is a bit annoying and if nobody says that, then it just happens. And so it is, yeah, you have some confrontational situations, but I think part of the theory of what we do is that you have to confront these things, otherwise it doesn't get done. Otherwise, just the the status quo is just to go with those who, are, you know, gain the most from this current situation, which in this case is people who are making money off the destruction of our planet. And so we, there has to be some level of disruption, and so that's what we do. I mean, you draw analogies to Brad's cause as a avid vegan, you know, um, and those people that go out and, and, you know, stand there and show photos and, 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 and put themselves on the front line. We've talked many times about this uh, on the show, and I sort of am leaning towards you, you do need people to be shocked. You do need people to go, what's this guy doing on the Harbour Bridge? What's this all about? Because for every inconvenience, you've got the person, and I guess this is probably why you guys do what you do, going, oh, this, what's this on the news? Some guy's tied himself to a, to a bloody railway um, line. And then they go in and they go, what's this for? What's this about? So I do think, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously history has proven that we do need these types of people in it, and obviously, you know, talking to yourself. So one thing I'm interested in is you've done this, at this you know, for a military and for the, the, the war on terror for a certain cause, and now you're doing it for this. Will you um, put yourself on the front line for anything you believe in? Or, you know, is this, are you now more into the environment than you were for political sort of war type stuff? How have you sort of managed what you do and you don't sort of activate for, you know? Yeah, well, I also, so last year there was a big uh, military, uh, well, a weapons fair, weapons sales fair in Brisbane. I also jumped on top of a truck carrying military equipment and and stopped that entering the arms (laughs) fair. And so I still do a bit of both. (laughs) So 
but you can't do it for everything because it, it's difficult to do and it comes with other inconveniences and things like that. And so you do have like to jail. Yeah, that's right. That is one of those inconveniences, yeah. And so you have to be a bit selective about, you know, where is this tactic appropriate? Where is it most effective or maybe most needed? You know, if there's not already public discourse and you need to sort of start it, maybe that's a place or if there you think that it's useful. So there's there's lots of things to weigh up. But like you say, it's very useful in lots of ways and history has shown that it can be effective. And on that inconveniences, like you sort of, I guess, play down the inconvenience of, you know, chaining yourself to a train line. I'm guessing with potentially trains coming at you if they don't get warned in advance. And I'm guessing to do this protest, you're out in the middle of, like you said, west. it's west of Mackay. It's out in the middle of... I mean, you know, snake, snake area. It's, you know, how many <laughs> things can kill you out there? I mean, yeah. you must have had support crew, you know, like... You gotta go to the toilet. You gotta drink. You know, you gotta drink and eat. How, logistically, how does yeah? That let's. Work? I, I'm going to talk about logistics. Okay, yeah. how do you how do you get food in, water in? How do you go to the toilet, bathe, and and how do you actually even finance this? Obviously, you're away from your disability support work. How do you go out to these in, in areas for I guess weeks and I guess maybe even months on end with no income and no facilities? What's it like, I guess? <laughs> All right, yeah, well, so Frontline Action on Call, we set up, a, we wanted to make this easier for people to do and make it possible. And so we have like a, a block of land where some people helped us out in getting this block of land where we're sort of based and people can come and stay there and plan and, um, and learn the skills required to do it. And so we start with that. That place is called Camp Binby and it's been an amazing place for so many people, in, including myself. Um, and there, you know, if people come and say this is something that they want to do, then we help to figure out what kind of thing they'd like to do because there's lots of different ways you could, you guys are probably familiar with different tactics as well as locking yourself to things. You could go up in a tree sit or in a, a tripod across a road or you could just climb up on top of some machinery or all these different things. And so we're very concerned with safety and well-being of people. And so we make sure that people have practiced, that they know what they're doing and that we do have some support crew. You know, if it's hot, we'll give you people like Hydrolite to stay hydrated and things like that and water and hat and sunscreen. And you can't always have a crew around because often it's trespassed just by nature of where you are. And so if, unless you want everybody in your crew to get arrested, you can't really do that. But we make sure that people are feeling comfortable and that they've got the things that they need. That's a big part of what we do. Going to the toilet, obviously, um, while you've got both arms locked into a, a steel tube around a rail line, you have limited options there for how you go to the <laughs> toilet. I'm looking at the photo right now and it'll, it'll be in our show notes. It'll be all over those. It's, it's an interesting one. I mean, uh, you and Tammy must be great mates by now. Uh, <laughs> how long did, did you stay on there, Andy? Well, we were on there a few hours, but we were sort of – so I should say the other as part of our safety thing as well, we do call up the rail company and say there's somebody locked on your rail line, stop all the trains, and they do. And it, they're, you know, they're concerned about safety as well for everybody. And so we, so we called up and, and said that, and then me and Tammy locked ourselves, our arms into these tubes, which we call lock-on pipes and have been used in different campaigns around the world and then we were there it was a few hours that we were there I'm now I'm trying to remember how long at least two hours that we were locked on but while we were there the train Adani's train and it was a Adani's first sort of properly loaded train it wasn't you know at complete capacity but a train load of coal that had just started shipping coal out and so this was a significant one we wanted to stop and so while we were there the train stopped at a siding and some other people went and found it and jumped up on the train. And so then they were there for hours. And so actually we blocked the train for most of the day through different people. And and so Adani's triumphant moment of their first train of coal getting through turned into a day of them standing around in the sun while we were blocking their train. Hats off because I would be f- shitting my pants at some train. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like some guy, uh, de- uh, de- you know, rings up bloody, you know, someone in politics and goes, oh, let it run, let it run, it's fine. You know, like uh, <laughs> I just, it, it's, um, it's a testament to the strength 
uh, and courage of, of yourself and, and obviously the people around you. Yeah, commendable, man. It's uh, it's awe-inspiring, and I, I don't think I could do it. But then again, I suppose I do some other stupid crap, so, I, you know. <laughs> but but on, on, a, on a serious note, frontline activists like yourself have, have now, you know, it's – now gone into celebrity celebrities to perform, and you know David Peacock, former Australian captain of the Wallabies, he does stuff like this all the time. Have you had any interaction with David, and and do you know of David, and do you, you know do you know of what he does? Yeah, he actually came down to uh, Frontline Action on Coal's previous camp. I don't think he ever came up to the Adani one, but when we were at Moores Creek, which is in sort of northwestern New South Wales which was a bit more accessible for people in the big cities. David Pocock, who at the time was the captain of the Wallabies rugby team, he actually came out and he he locked himself to some mining machinery along with one of the local farmers there. And I actually wasn't around at the time, so I never met him, but apparently he was very friendly and very sort of humble and he was in an unfamiliar space. He might be very good at what he does, but in, in that stage he was in an unfamiliar space and so he had to learn <laughs> from others. We've had different people come up, musicians and politicians and things like that, come up to the camp to show their support and and be involved. And I think I think that's great. I think you've got to use the the media and use whatever mm-hmm. tools you have to get out there. And so if people have got a higher profile then I'm very happy if they're going to use it for protecting our planet. And this is the thing about, I guess, activism now in that it's quite smart in that it's not just about two people chaining themselves to a train or or jumping up a tree or whatever it might be. I'm guessing there's a coordinated media effort around it as well, like you basically give a tip-off to the various media outlets or you even have your own sort of PR team to go, hey, we're going to be doing this. Let's get this properly, uh, you know, photographed, videoed, interviewed, et cetera, to spread the message far and wide. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, the ability to do these things now is really amazing compared to a decade ago or more. We're really in the middle of nowhere out there, Mm, (laughs) Adani, some of the actions that we do. But you can film these things and send them off straight away with mobile phone, internet, and whatever. And so, you know, you're never going to get a news crew to drive out five hours west of Mackay, but you can film your own footage and get it on the news. And so we do, we're in contact with the mainstream media. We also use social media and we've made our own little films. People have developed the skills, creative skills that they have around, you know, making film, writing, whatever. And so we're able to talk about what we do in that way and reach a, a large audience that way as well because it is it's about being smart if you do these things mm. and nobody hears about them then i suppose that's still something but it's not nearly as good as doing things and getting them out to the widest audience you can and if you can compare that to say 20 30 year ago protests you know Frank, franklin dam or something like that it's so different like probably 30 years ago two individuals do you know chain themselves to something they'd probably just have their cameras destroyed and beaten up and essentially discouraged to ever set foot in town ever again and obviously that would be a significantly less effective campaign than, than I guess the, the type we see nowadays, basically. So I guess that the, the next question I had was, is this sort of activism working? Like obviously the train example, you inconvenience Adani and stop them moving coal one day. Thinking bigger picture though, is it actually effective? Is it going to achieve your long-term goal of, or whatever, whatever it is? What, sorry, I guess first question is, what is the long-term goal? And do you think you will actually achieve it? 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good question. I think the... A long-term goal for us at Frontline Action on Coal is just a, a world where the threat of climate change is taken with the seriousness that it deserves, I think, where there's a concerted effort to be how can we live in a way that's sustainable for the planet and for future generations. That could look like a lot of things, but that would be the long-term goal and the slightly more short-term goal then is that we'll focus on the Adani mine and we wanted to stop it from being built or at least make it as difficult as possible and minimize that mine. And so we didn't stop it. We didn't manage to stop it, but we have so far, you know, slowed it down, downsized it. So I think in that level, we've had some amount of success. You're right in that you can't just expect that people going out and sitting on a train line day after day is going to stop a mine being built. You need to have a broader strategy around that. And so the Adani campaign has actually been brilliant for strategy and developing ways of, okay, let's target any insurance company that might support Adani and Mm. warn them that if they do, we're going to protest them. We will make a big deal about it and it will damage their brand. Okay, now let's target what are the contractors that could do logistics for Adani. Let's do each of them. Um, And then different elements of it, you know, big things in the cities, big rallies. And then also I think that the frontline resistance of what we were doing, number one, it just is very annoying for Adani. It slows down their work, pushes up their security costs, whatever. But also it just keeps this very visual image of public resistance to Adani, you know, and the more you're sending out these pictures, oh, another person has locked themselves to something, another person stopped it. Mm. It never lets Adani build this story of, oh, we're doing these great things and everybody loves us. It's like there's just this continuing story of people are resisting it. I think as well as adding extra costs, that's how direct action fits into a broader campaign. But you do need a a range of different tactics Mm. and a range of different strategies if we're going to achieve what is a difficult thing to do to try to stop the runaway train that is climate change and that is our society causing climate change. It's a huge thing and we need to be smart about what kind of measurable goals we can achieve to get there and what kind of strategies we can use to get those goals. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like it's obviously it it takes all fronts, whether you're targeting the mine operations themselves, the potential investors, engineering firms, for example. I know I think it was uh, either you guys or Stop Adani were involved in actually campaigning against the engineering company associated with the various environmental impact statements associated with the Adani project. And I know that was GHD for about 10 years or so. You know, there was protests outside the GHD engineering offices, I think, in Brisbane. And I believe probably as a direct result of that campaigning, the protests, et cetera, that caused a lot of internal conflict within GHD around whether we should actually be involved in this mine at all. And long story short, I don't believe they are anymore. Uh, but you imagine if you're a, a mine site, you are, sorry, a mine operator or, or proponent, you are heavily reliant on a whole bunch of individual groups, whether it be engineer, engineering uh, companies, ecology sort of consultancy firms, you know, everyone to do your environmental impact assessment. And very few companies, I believe, would actually take that on just because of the, the conflict that would cause within that company as potentially as, as a result of the press that's, you know, stirred up by various groups like you guys. And then you've got the investors. A lot of investors just won't touch coal mines anymore. Uh, a lot of individuals are obviously moving their super or investment portfolios away from mining operations. They can choose to do that. But I think fundamentally, I think big business realizes that the, the future of coal at the end is an eye. So the financial risk associated with investing in coal mines and operations is is becoming increasingly limited. Yeah, and and to that point, it's also the social pressure. I mean, every company's got a sustainability statement up on their website. Ten years ago, you know, I'd love to know how many did, but you know, everyone is sustainable, sustainably focused now, or they say that they are. So therefore, the pressure is to your point. The pressure comes when like a GHD goes and actually, you know, works for mine. And then it's like, well, hold on, we're, we're preaching this on this hand and then on the other. So it's forcing change. 
um, it's you know, you know, it's forcing change. So you know, the work that Andy does and and and, and all the people that Andy works with—that's just one piece in the puzzle that forces change. But it is uh, such an important one. I just want to go back to the coal stack things. It's amazing how much coal we export in Australia. Coal export three hundred ninety-three million tons. We exported in two thousand nineteen. We are the second biggest exporter of coal in the world behind Indonesia at 455 million tonnes. Isn't that amazing? Like, we're just the same in New Zealand. Like, I'm sure the numbers are a lot less. I mean, last year, I think we, what do we do? We imported 800,000 tonnes of coal, and we Mm. use it solely for power, just like you Mm. guys. You guys Mm -hmm. are not only exporting, but you're also pulling stuff in. I mean, it's it's just stupid. All to go to a waiter to, that we know doesn't. It, it's just horrible for the environment, and mm. yet, the, you know, it, it, it comes down to the fact that governments make money on this. That's all it comes Absolutely. comes down to. I don't know how much coal we in Australia were exporting, but that is just a phenomenal amount of coal. And this is the line the federal government's used historically in that Australia's contribution to climate change is minimal. You know, our per capita you know, CO2 equivalent emissions is fairly low, you know, and we're a low population, I think, the, the more term. So our impact for, you know, using fossil fuels and, and for our own consumption is fairly low. But our, our key role in this space is clearly digging up coal and giving it to others to burn. And that is why Australia actually is a significant contributor to climate change and we cannot point the finger of blame and expect others to do what is necessary to protect essentially society to mitigate the uh, impacts of climate change without actually cleaning up our own backyard. And the worst thing you can do in your backyard as a, as a, as a country is dig up more coal and send it somewhere for to be burnt. It just makes no sense. And this is something I sort of took away from there's a, and you would have seen it, Andy. There's a, obviously, it went through an extensive, I guess, environmental impact statement. We should point out, I'll include a link to this in the show notes. So the Queensland government have a website because it's a, a project of state significance. It gets passed on to the state government for review. And look, there's a environmental impact assessments associated with it. One thing I, I was digging around for, and Andy, you might correct me if I'm wrong, that they obviously focused on the local, the environmental impact assessment focused on the local impacts associated with this mine, which are significant. You know, you're clearing a lot of land, there's some threatened species, et cetera. Did the assessment really, con- did the assessment consider and appropriately assess in your mind the climate change implications of a tick of approval for this project. So not just the localised impacts of, you know, impact to the birds and whatever, to building the railway and clearing the land. Did it really assess the impacts associated with the burning of this coal in India and also, I guess, the precedent that it sets by essentially giving uh, more, I guess, encouragement for future coal projects, recognising that I think there's another four or five potential coal mine projects uh, proposed in that area itself. You are very correct in thinking that it it didn't take into account the climate impacts and that's been a real campaign for a long, long time that we've been running is that all approval, project approval should take into account the downstream emissions of what's being dug up because it's just illogical not to. We're talking about the environmental impact. Well, that is the environmental impact and it's in fact it's the main environmental impact. That is staggering. Yeah, yeah, that, no, interrupt. Yeah. that is staggering. Yeah, staggering. That, and, and I've done a lot of environmental impact assessments. And, I, and I, basically the scope of it, EIS is dictated by what was referred to as a term of terms of reference. So what does the EIS cover? And I'm just curious as to know as who specified that terms of reference. Is that a state government thing or is that a federal government thing or, or what? Projects like Adani require approvals from both state and federal because of the size of it. And so... I'm not sure exactly how that's divided between the two of them, but basically because the system is just weighed in favor of those who are likely to make money and those who are protecting the environment aren't likely to make money and those who are digging it up are. And so they've managed to, you know, get around any way that they can. And the, I guess a lot of the land courts and processes haven't been willing to be the one who sort of does something unpopular and says, well, this should count in the environmental impact. We have had a bit of a win in New South Wales recently with the mine at Bialong, the Kepco mine at Bialong, which 
was refused on partly on the grounds of climate, which is the first time that that's happened. And mm. so we're very happy about that. It shows that I guess the the processes that are, are set up are not necessarily done to protect the environment, but they're just done, you know, it is, well, it is environmental sort of one that have made sure that these things have to be done because once upon a time, you just would have been able to go and dig a hole and nobody would have done anything to stop you. But now we do have this, what they call green tape, you know, these environmental approvals, but there's, I guess, different elements of the chain they're working in league to make sure that in the end, the people that are going to make a lot of money are still going to still have the most advantage. And so that's what we're up against. And I think that's the thing is without people kicking up a fuss, without people disrupting things, these things don't change. And once upon a time, we would have had far less environmental safeguards than we have now. And we had incredible mm. environmental disasters, human cause. And it's people that are forcing themselves into that chain and saying no we need to do this that's how these things change yeah look something is better than nothing like some sort of review impact assessment process is better than none at all clearly but from my mind looking at the eis summary and the, i think the the reviewers comments there's a lot of reference to monitoring and management and, and to me that's just greenwashing uh it's basically the impacts will already happen and you'll monitor them and you'll you'll try and mitigate them as best you can but there's probably no obligation there's no certainly a uh there's no showstopper if if you monitor the impacts and you sort of they just might change over time and that'll be reported on in some document that no one will ever read but getting back uh to the point made earlier when you're specifying the scope of that works and you exclude the number one likely impact associated with this mine being the impacts associated with the burning of the fossil fuel. It's just fundamentally a flawed process. It's simple as that. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what we've said for many years. Mate, I, I just can't go back to the I've got to go back to this. We're not considering the downstream effect as we like to say. So in this environmental impact assessment, whatever you want to call it. So it just it assess the local you know, um, the local conditions and what's going to happen to the biodiversity and digging a big hole. It didn't assess anything else, the the carbon footprint of this. You're telling me 100% it did not consider any of them? No, yeah, you, climate just wasn't a factor in it, yeah. Well, staggering. That, that is just staggering because, as you said, I think, Andy, it's actually it's, it's impacting the climate more than well on a local issue. And do, do the, does the public know that? I mean... Are we just, did you know that, Brad? I, mean, I, I had heard of it, but I haven't really been that abreast over the Adani project for a long time. You sort of hear about snippets in the, in the news, whatever, and you talk to a few people. And, but it's just good to have a, this conversation with Andy to sort of clarify some of these things. And I, I guess, you know, on this topic, you've got to wonder why it is the case. You know, why is it that the, the scope of works or the terms of reference doesn't appropriately cover the likely impacts. And uh, I don't want to be sort of sceptical, but you've got to point the finger well, at potential governments and around, well, it'd be, it'd be uh, that's what's the question for Andy, it'd be either federal yeah. or state government entity or group writing the terms of reference, but you've got to wonder how they are being influenced. And it's no secret that the the, the coal mining industry is probably a, a heavy you know supporter of, of various governments. Uh, yeah, obviously they pay tax, but they also pay various contributions, I guess, to sort of political campaigns to make sure their favourite politicians are in power. But it's just disappointing when you see this, sort of, I guess, here, the the subsequent consequences of this sort of stuff. You know, the fact that climate change impacts aren't appropriately uh, assessed or, or even uh, included in the assessment. And as a result, we've got a, a new hole in the ground that's exporting a, a stack of uh, coal to India and potentially open the floodgates to more coal mines being built in Queensland and Australia, recognising that the burning of these fossil fuels just contributes more and more to potentially the greatest threat to the humanity we've ever seen in climate change. It's just, it's just very disappointing. But it's not all about doom and gloom. Obviously, frontline action on coal and, and the likes of, say, Sopadani have been effective you know, on various fronts. I guess, what's next for you, Andy? And what's next for your or frontline action on coal? Yeah. You're obviously in Brisbane. You're not, you're not on camp. So what's your next move? Um, yeah, well, if I can just jump back to uh, just what you were just speaking about then, I guess one of the things yeah. that is frustrating about climate change is that people, so often it's about, oh, what's the, the minimum I have to do? What's my obligations? And then Australia talking about, oh, we don't create many emissions. Well, we do per person on a global scale, but also yeah, yeah. we export a lot. But, 
you know, beyond that, it's about, well, we could be out there trying to stop climate change. We could be a renewable energy superpower. As people have said, we could be exporting this technology. We could be exporting the actual energy, you know, running cables across to Indonesia, whatever, like all kinds of things that Australia could be the leaders of making a better world. And instead, all we're worried about is, are we meeting the minimal obligations? And I think that's part of what we do at FLAC as well, Frontline Action on Coal, is trying to highlight people you know get out there and be a part of making a change like it's not just about worrying about or it's not just about doing the minimal obligations you know these eis things you can tick a box say you know let's live for something more important than ourselves let's be the person who gets out there and tries to save the planet and tries to do something you know something ridiculous <laughs> like trying to stop a mining company and so that's you know that's one of the messages that we hope to give but to go back to your question of what's next, yeah, it's been a, a real period of reflection for us as the, the mine's been built at Frontline Action on Coal. And so, to be honest, our, our time there is probably limited and because we want to be smart with the resources we have and use it for a campaign that's most worthwhile, which may not be this one. And so, we have got a bit of a period of deciding what to do next and for me personally as well, I mean, that's true as well. I've spent a lot of time. I spent well over a year living up in central Queensland in different stints working on this project. And I've got other aspects of my life, including getting married in a few months' time. And so, <laughs> Congratulations. yeah, so I've got to think about how to do the things that are really important, protecting our planet, our oceans, our ecosystems uh, and things like that and balancing it among other other parts of life but i think it's a really important question what do we want our legacy to be and so for me i want what i'm spending my days doing to be something that i'm proud of something that i care about and so i'll keep on being involved in trying to protect the planet hey i i want to see you um get over to the states and try and stop the old u.s government mate i mean um, <laughs> i just can't believe you jumped on sorry to go back to it you jumped on a truck full of military grade weapons <laughs> Like, were they Australian weapons or were they US weapons? This specifically was at an arms fair, and so it was a company an actually that was bringing its, its kind of showcase. So they were bringing their weapons that they were trying to sell. So that was that was that one. But I did actually I stand in front of some US tanks in uh, Shoalwater Bay quite a few years ago, um, which was quite an experience. <laughs> we haven't actually touched on this, so um, can just before you head off. Have you got? Have you been to jail that often? Like, obviously, a lot of these activities, unfor- like, you know, are unlawful. I'm guessing, you know, tra- chaining yourself to trains, or jumping on trucks. Have you got a record? <laughs> yeah, have you done since side you done? Have you got a wee teardrop? I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Generally, the charges aren't that serious, and I think as well within the legal system, there is an understanding of your intent, you know. And if your intent is just to for political purposes and you're not trying to harm somebody, then generally that's taken into account. So it's quite rare that people go to prison for these kind of actions unless yeah, you do good. a lot in a row and then they're trying to stop you doing that and that might be the case. So I've never done actual prison sentence. I've been arrested. Um, it's a few times. It, it's hard to say an exact figure because sometimes you get arrested and drop and released without charges and things like that. But it's more than mm. 10 times, whichever way you want to measure it over the years. Generally, there's fines. I think pretty much all the time that it's gone to court and I've been found guilty, I've just been fined. And maybe a, you know, a day or a night in the watch house, which are all interesting experiences as well. You know, it's <laughs> not necessarily the most pleasant, but it is interesting to you know, explore different aspects of our society. What's it like to be excluded from our society, to be locked up and things like that? And um, what does it mean to stand up for your beliefs in the face of a very powerful system that doesn't share them? All these kind of things, that's like they can be valuable experiences as well. Brad, have you been to jail? No. Never. Mate you, you need, mate, you need to get arrested for your dance moves, mate. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> need, need to be praised with the trophies, I think, for my dance moves. But, uh, oh. but look, the final word, uh, obviously you talk about legacy. So what, what's the – you've got people obviously uh, significantly more engaged and interested about this uh, issue if they weren't already, but what's your advice to, to the general public around environmental activism or, or whatever it might be? My advice and, and what we've always tried to do at – flack is to 
inspire people to act. You know, if you believe that there's something wrong with our society and the disregard it shows for the the natural world that keeps us alive, if there's something wrong with our political system, which is weighed heavily in favor of big corporations, big mining corporations and things like that, you know, we all know that there's something wrong. So let's try to think about what can we do, you know, as groups, what can we do as individuals and let's go out there and do them. Like, uh, I guess it's, we don't want to be regretting what we didn't do. And so I think Flack, it's about action, right? It's in our name, Frontline Action on Coal. It's about not just believing things are wrong, but about taking action and trying to make things better. And obviously people listen to your podcast, probably care about conservation, probably care about our natural environment and that's awesome. And so I guess what I hope to contribute is maybe different ideas of what the actions that we do to protect them can look like and how can we best use the the skills and the passions of everybody around us to to make the world better. Well, Andy, mate, you by day, um, you know, work and, and look after people with disabilities, and then you go out and you care and, and put your body on the on on the line for a world, I guess, that currently has a disability and being humans and the impact that we are leaving on the planet, mate. Mm-hmm. Very admirable what you do on and off the field, mate. I'm not sure if uh, you know all the kids out there will want to be activists. However, uh, the stuff that you do is, mate, it's highly commendable and. Um, Look, I love having people like you on the show. It's real, it's raw, and without people like you, we um, we don't hear about things like the Adani Mind and um, and all the other you know horrible things that, that do go on. So, Andy, keep up that great work, mate, and um, and we look forward to getting you back on the show in a, in a year's time and see what you've done. You, you might getting married though. Just a suggestion, maybe just cool down on the old uh, you know. Um, the, the, the jail sort of uh, type thing and spend some time, time with your lovely uh, new wife. Might be a reprieve. <laughs> but look, yeah, to Jeremy's point, we, we, we don't have to chain ourselves to tracks, but we can we can all act in our own way and we, we certainly potentially have a responsibility to do so. And to quote Margaret Mead, uh, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed individuals can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. And it's been a great chat. Thanks so much for coming on our show. Total kudos to you and um, look forward to seeing what you're up to next. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, fellas, and good work as well on um, doing your podcast and protecting our oceans. Boom, boom. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.